Welcome to Better Leaders, the podcast, where we surface good leadership and smart management in media and beyond. Today, I'm talking to Candice Fortman, Executive Director at Outlier Media. My name is Anita Zilina, and I'm your host. Welcome to Better Leaders. Candice, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you here today with me uh, in our podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. It is a pleasure to be here. We've been waiting so long to have this conversation, and I'm so <laughs> glad our schedules finally allowed us to be able to talk today. The stars have aligned around our schedules, uh, and I, I can't wait to, to have this conversation with you. And we we touched on some some points around leadership management, you know, when we when we met in person at conferences and so forth. But I'm really thrilled uh, that we're going to dig deep today. And I thought we could start for the few people in our audience who don't know you, but should know you. I thought we could start by you telling them a little bit about yourself and your basically your current role and your career. Sure. So I am the executive director of Outlier Media, which is a nonprofit news organization in Detroit in the States. Um, I am very fortunate to be the first executive director of Outlier. Uh, Outlier's founder, Sarah Alvarez, uh, was working in public radio. And I was also working in public radio at two different stations. And so we knew about each other's work. And she found me and um, asked me if I would come and help her run this idea that she had, which was this model for journalism that's very different um, than uh, most journal- most newsrooms operate. And the first time she asked me, I actually told her no. <laughs> so, oh, I didn't know that. It's a good story. So I had just actually finished doing the Pointer Women's Leadership Academy and I came back super motivated to like course correct the job I was in. And about a week after that is when Sarah reached out to me for the first time. I had just gotten back. And so we meet for coffee. And it was, I think, our first time, one of our first times really meeting and sitting down. And so she was like, you know, I have did this uh, fellowship at Stanford. She had just finished JSK. And I have this model for reporting that really looks at the information needs of communities. And like the newsroom will be built only to fill those information needs. And I was into it because this was in my work what I was hoping to accomplish. I thought everything she was telling me sounded incredible and exactly what newsrooms needed, but I did not think that I was the person that could help her accomplish it. And I just left the Leadership Academy. And I should tell you about how much work we need to still do to make sure that folks can fully see their skill sets. You know, I was like, go find somebody else. I don't, I can't raise money. I can't build a whole organization, right? And then, um, so that was in like April of 2018. And then in November of 2018, we actually got stuck on a train together coming from a conference in Chicago. And we got stuck so much that we actually had to end up leaving the next day. So we said, well, let's go to dinner together. We sit down at dinner. And by the end of that dinner, I said I was taking the job. And the rest is history. <laughs> so you, you mentioned some of the things that you do uh, in your role, but how would you describe it to someone who's not like crazy, super deep into the whole 
nonprofit journalism entrepreneurship thing? What do you spend your day with? Oh my gosh, every day is different. Most of my brain right now is really consumed with fundraising, not just because it's year end, but I think that over time, my job has evolved to a place where really my main function is to make sure that we have enough operating dollars to continue doing our work here in Detroit. And so I would say that thinking about a sort of like founding executive director role is imagine that you are uh, both flying the plane building the plane, making sure you have enough flight attendants on the plane. You also maybe cook the food for first class <laughs> all at the same time. It is a job that really requires you to use a little bit of a lot of skills. So huh. you need some fundraising in there. You need donor relations skills. You need management skills to deal with day-to-day operations and the hiring of people. You also need, I think the most important skill you need is to understand what you do not have the capacity to do so that you can bring in folks who are very good at that thing. Oh, I love that. Right? Like that for me has been the most valuable part of building, particularly our management team, is that I was able, Sarah and I were able to sit down and say, here are the skill sets that don't sit in this building between the two of us, and then hire people who are really good at those things. And it really allows us to be in a space as leaders where we are really respectful of our directors Mm. because they truly know things we do not know and we don't deny that. And so I think that part of that job is also figuring out very quickly what you don't know so that you can get folks in who can do it. So this is, this is actually, this is super interesting because this is, you you say that like everyone should kind of, you know, run things that way. Um, But it is actually not the case that every leader and every manager understands that because I think sometimes What happens is that you feel you need to pretend to know everything because leadership is still kind of defined as like being the, you know, person who knows everything. How did you, like, were you always that like reflected as in, oh, I know these things I'm really good at and these things I'm not. And like, you know, kind of being that generous also in like sharing, almost sharing the limelight with, you know, with basically others. So how did you get there? Um, (laughs) I am always getting there because even in understanding that and like really deeply understanding it, it is such a battle with ego because that's the thing that you're trying to solve for is your own ego. Yeah. And this idea that leadership means that you know all, that you do all. And I am really trying to disavow myself of that belief personally, because it's not helpful to the organization. It's also not helpful as a leader because it stops you from actually growing in ways that would be more useful for the organization over time. So what I eventually realized is that in order for Outlier to be successful, I was going to have to become a much better fundraiser and not just better, but much more successful. And I could not do that and also build the handbook and also do the budgets and also, right? So I was going to have to lean on people and trust that they could get the work done. And that is a day-to-day practice of checking my ego at the door when I walk in that office. I will not tell you that I'm successful every day. I will not tell you that there are not times where things happen and they like decisions are made and I didn't even know they happened. And I'm like, well, how come no one said anything to me? And in those moments, I have to stop and have a conversation with myself and say, hey, is this a time where you really need it to be brought into the room? Or is your ego 
hurt that you were not brought into the room mm. and that things move forward without you. And I think that when I ultimately consider outliers success, Sarah and I are very clear on one thing that we want this organization to outlive our time in the organization. That means that you build that now. You don't build that once you leave. Yes. So we have to ensure that there is a culture in that newsroom where people truly understand that their work is valued and that they are able to make decisions independent of us if in fact we want that to be true when we do exit at some point. Mm. So how did you identify what to delegate? I mean, one thing that you mentioned is what the organization needed at this point, but I I do assume there is also kind of a, a percentage of what do you enjoy doing? What are you really great at? Um, what is it that you want to lean into? How did you balance those different needs? We were really clear editorially with what we were building. So on the editorial side, we were not looking for people who were trying to get us to change our model, right? So like on that side, we were really clear because we were responding to information needs of Detroiters, right? And we had a, we have a, we still have a very good um, roadmap for figuring that out on the business side, <laughs> because both Sarah and I come from sort of like, Sarah was a reporter and a lawyer in her former life. And I have worked at sort of the intersection of business operations and audience development and marketing. And so those are the areas that I shine in. Now, when we got to uh, a place where the budget was more than a dollar, we both immediately understood that we were out of our source. Like we, we were good up until I think the numbers hit like maybe a million dollars. And then yeah. we said, you know what? Somebody else needs to be in yeah. on this with us. So like both of us understanding that our background is not in finance, it's not in accounting. And we deeply respect people who have that ability. And so bringing in someone who can help us with that day-to-day, because particularly as your budget grows, you have to be watch that budget every day. You watch the money every single day. And Sarah can't run the newsroom and I can't run the sort of like long-term strategic thinking and also spend every day, you know, on our bank account. Yeah. And so those are one of the things on the development side, like even though I'm still doing a lot of the the fundraising, particularly on the philanthropic side and developing those relationships, we really knew that we needed to bring in someone who would own the building of strategy, particularly around individual and Mm -hmm. like major gifts. And so we brought in a development director who had that experience, who had done it both for other larger nonprofits, but also at the university level, because she was able to bring in thinking that we certainly didn't have, neither we hadn't done that job before. And so really, we got really clear on what it was. Of course, like you said, like the things we did not want to do right? Sarah does not want to be a fundraiser. And she is very clear yeah. about that. That is why I exist, right? And also I don't want to be a chief revenue officer. And that's why our incredible finance and operations director, Erica Schottmeyer exists. It's why Chelsea Brown, our development director exists in our newsroom, because those were jobs they are much better equipped to do than Sarah and I. Totally. So what, what impresses me so much as we are you know, when I look at that landscape of community-focused media startups that thankfully are kind of emerging and are growing and are popping up all over the United States and the rest of the world, mm. uh, for, for that matter, 
One thing that always impressed me so much about you guys and Outlier is that even though you both don't come as founders or co-founders from the business, like the hardcore like finance accounting business side, from the beginning, you understood that this is important. That whether you decide to run a nonprofit or a for-profit, whether you decide to scale that into new cities or just stick to Detroit, Whatever your vision is behind doing that, money is an important element in it. And I think that distinguishes you from quite a few other organizations because what I'm still sometimes hearing, specifically when I kind of talk to community-oriented media, is like, well, you know, we're eventually going to figure out the money part, but we want to focus on journalism. And I'm like, folks, I hope you can still focus on your journalism when there is no money (laughs) that pays the bill. Were you always kind of that that clear about the importance of the business side? How did that magically kind of, you know? You know, I don't think that most people know that when Sarah brought me on, we were not intending to build a newsroom. Mm. We were actually trying to give the model that is outlier. So that's sort of like responsive journalism, um, identifying information needs over to a larger newsroom that would be more sustainable. Mm. That was the goal. And that was a strategic business decision, right? Because, you know, we didn't want to become fundraisers. We didn't want to become, right? So like we did want to have to build this whole thing. And also there are still a lot of newsrooms in Detroit. We still have two daily papers, right? Like, and that is pretty unusual for a city our size. And so our hope was that this would help to strengthen the editorial work in this city, particularly for people who really needed information as a way to get out of crisis, because that was the thing we were most focused on. And then over time, we realized that was not going to happen and that people were not going to be concerned with that at that time. Now, it's so funny because now everybody's talking about information gaps and a lot of people are talking about responsive journalism, but you know, we were a bit ahead of our time. And so for us, there are two things that make us care about the business side and none of it has to do with being necessarily successful in this way and like on the business side. Yeah. We deeply care about the state of information in Detroit and how the lack of access and quality of good information keeps Detroiters from being able mm. to live more prosperous lives. And That means in order for us to have a hand in changing that, we needed to build a bigger newsroom that was able to reach more people, which Mm. meant we needed to build a general audience. In order to build a general audience, we were going to need more money in the bank. And so this is about fulfilling mission first. Yeah. And so then the second thing is we have from the very beginning been thinking about how we could, on the personnel side, address some of the harms done to the folks who build and work in journalism, particularly paying people better, having more support, having better health care, having better access to leave. And so that also means that you are going to have to get really strategic about building revenue. None of this has to do with us wanting to make more money. We have consistently underpaid ourselves so that we could balance the bottom end of our staffing Mm. and pay our junior staff more money than they would in many other newsrooms. That is strategic. And I think that over time, it will have to, all those things will have to even out. We will continue to pay well, but we'll also have to pay 
you know, our directors more. Um, but that's as much like when I hear people talk about revenue, I always say, I feel like we're having the wrong conversation because what's the purpose of the revenue? Yeah. What is the goal you're trying to achieve? Because when I set my sort of goals at the people, those people we serve, the people we employ, it takes away sort of the nastiness of money. And I think that also people's personal relationship with money often comes into this. One of the most valuable pieces of advice I have received was from a major gifts coach that I had. And she said, Candace, it's not that you are not a good fundraiser. It is that you have a bad personal relationship with money and you are assuming everybody else has that relationship with money. Mm. And that really helped me to start doing some sort of internal work to really think about how I was treating the idea of asking for money. And once I changed that around and I realized Mm. that what I'm trying to accomplish with people's money is to make sure Detroiters are better informed and that our staff is well taken care of. Now I'm not asking you for money, right? I put quotes around that. Now I'm asking you to help us fulfill a mission. Money just happens to be the tool by which we fulfill that mission. Totally. No, that's such an interesting approach. And I think it's, it's helpful because I do feel there is still this kind of tendency to think about money as like a dirty word in impact entrepreneurship, almost as if you have to decide between mission-driven and (laughs) well-funded. And that is risky, right? Because I'm just like looking at the landscape. I'm like, well, I do want these mission-driven organizations to be well-funded because if the only well-funded ones are the ones, you know, where venture capitalists and hedge funds don't care about mission at all, then we end up with a very precarious kind of group of startups that's probably not going to be sustainable in the long run. That's probably jumping from grant to grant and disappearing after one or two years or one of two, one or two rounds of grants. And then we have like large corporates that continue to exist, but become less and less mission driven because of the need to fulfill investors demands almost. And it kind of creates that gap. We are in a very, <laughs> interesting place right now in the States in journalism and funding, because all of those things that you just mentioned. And I think the other problem that we have is that we still have communities that will never be able to sustain a newsroom. And that does not mean that they don't need a newsroom. In fact, it probably means that they need a newsroom more than most places. Right. And so as a community of, as the, the ecosystem of journalism, How are we going to ensure that people have access to quality information for at least those like really high areas that we know keep people from being able to thrive in communities, right? Mm. And those are often across the board pretty equal. Housing often comes up in that conversation. Um, wage gaps and, 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 and employment come up, comes up in that. Safety, but not policing, but actual safety in your community yeah. is a part of that. And I do think that we could be more thoughtful as an industry about what it means to build organizations. And I think when you see something like City Bureau, for instance, with the documenters program, and you start to see these things that can be modeled and put in other communities, yeah. you start to see, at least on the editorial side, some thinking about that. And now we need that same thing to happen on the money side. Yep. We need folks to think about what is the answer to a city bureau on the financing and fundraising side for places that will never be able to fully sustain newsrooms by just individual donations, major gifts, philanthropy? It doesn't mean that the things don't need to exist. Yeah. 
And so I think that that is the fear I have around sort of like nonprofit news is that we are actually not being courageous enough and like putting it all on the line. Mm. And we are about to go into another election year. We are right at the cusp of that. And we are also watching as social media falls apart. Oh, absolutely. And even the systems that people were able to build for themselves. So people who had Facebook groups for their communities, right? Who were able to disseminate information in that way. Even those things are starting to fall apart. Mm. What are we doing to make sure that systems exist, not just in Detroit, not just in, you know, other places and not just where there is a Candace that wants to do it. (laughs) Or a Sarah that wants to do it. Or Wendy in Memphis at MLK 50 that wants to do it. But that it just exists because it should exist. Yeah, absolutely. How much of your work, as as you're saying that, I'm like thinking how much of your work is persuasion and creating awareness and ecosystem work rather than just working for your own organization? What would you say? I really wish I was better <laughs> at tracking this. I know the number is high. High. <laughs> <laughs> I am very bad at tracking it. And I feel uh, like I was I was laughing the other day. I was going to a colleague's personal webpage and they had all their talks and all of their conference things outlined. And I was, oh my gosh, I would have to, I don't think I could ever do that. <laughs> a lot. It's, it's not a small percentage. Yeah. Now I will say that those things have also helped us on the fundraising side because they've helped to lift the profile of Outlier. So there has been some benefit for the organization for sure. But I do think that I am at a point where I have to right-size that. And that actually can no longer be the case. Where I need to spend more time in Detroit, you know, building that same sort of equity here that we use to build and to really help fund us in the in, in these earlier yeah. days, yeah. right? I'm going to have to reverse that course pretty significantly. And I think that's one of the tricky things about both entrepreneurship and leadership in organizations in general, that usually after a few years of doing a certain role, the organization enters a new phase, whether that, you know, for the better or worse. And you as a leader need to basically enter into a new phase. And what I think sometimes what quite often happens is that sea level leaders struggle to change gears, switch gears, move from, you know, the terrible word, but wartime CEO to peacetime CEO or the other way around, move from, you know, being highly involved in operations, uh, almost, you know, micromanaging to like kind of, you know, getting off the dance floor on the balcony, thinking strategically. How are you dealing with that fact? Are you trying to kind of be aware of these changes and like tackling these changes? Do you work with like a coach? Do you have a personal like board of directors, people you can turn to? I have all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> I have all of those things and I am, it's, it's, I am definitely in that place as a leader. Mm. We're not only about trying to figure out what is my role in the organization, but I think like the bigger question that all leaders should be asking themselves over time. And you can decide the timeline for asking that question. But I think particularly startup leaders is that what is the point at which 
the skill set you brought, the thing you brought to that organization is no longer what that organization needs. Yeah. And you can decide for yourself whether or not you're going to grow into the next type of leader that organization needs, or if you're going to say, maybe it's time for someone else to run this yeah. organization, right? And I think that in order to be successful, you do have to be asking yourself that question pretty regularly. Yeah. Um, I, I met someone who had this really good uh, process where on the date of their birthday every month, they ask themselves a series of questions, both in their personal life and in their Whoa. professional life, right? And there were a couple questions. They weren't big questions, right? How do you feel financially on the personal side? Do you feel safe and secure? Are you happy? Like these sort of things. And on the professional side, sort of some similar questions. And I would tell you that I'm not perfect at this, but there is a note in my calendar on the seventh of every month for me to do that check-in. So at Amazing. least as a reminder that I need to be checking back in with mm-hmm. myself because I think what will happen is that particularly over time, if you are successful in building the thing, your sense of self gets wrapped up in it. Mm, totally. Like, you know, you become, you start to believe that it is the reason that you get up and breathe every day. Mm. And that is also not a healthy place to be, oh, right? Because no. for any number of reasons, you could separate from the thing, from the organization. And so... I do think that over time I'm asking myself that question, but I do think that right now I'm asking myself that question a lot because this is a very different organization than the one I walked into where there were three of us. And there was, I think the day I started, there was like $72,000 in the bank account and we didn't know where the next dollar was going to come. Yeah, And so to go from there to, you know, we're going to hire our 16th employee soon and have a operating budget over $2 million is a very different place. Super different organization. And at some point you just need to, every leader, right, needs to decide, am I, do I feel more comfortable in like the building that like the crazy chaos, bringing order to chaos? Like, as you said, flying the plane and also being the person yeah. who like serves drinks at the same time? Or do I feel more comfortable when things kind of quiet down? Like, you know, perfectioning operations and so forth. I think there's, it's also something very personal, right? What makes Absolutely. you, what makes you tick as a leader? What is like that? What level of adrenaline almost do you need? Yeah. Um, it is such a personal question because yeah. it's also not just about, of course, then not just who you are internally, but the things externally around you. Do you have a family? Are you growing a young family? You know, are there other things happening? Are you taking care of, of elders? Like all of those things impact your ability to be able to move at the pace that most startups require you to move. Yeah. And so you do eventually have to say, is my life actually structured? And this organization structured in a way that I won't lose myself in this work. Yeah, because we don't want that to happen. I was talking to a colleague recently, and I I probably should write about this. Quite honestly, I say that like five hundred times a day. I should write about this, and then I go run a you know an organization <laughs> that never happens. But I am very fearful. If somebody asks me the thing that I fear most about where journalism is now. I don't know if it's the most, but it's it's in the top three, is that too much of our infrastructure is built on the sheer willpower of people who are unwilling to lose until the day they have to. And that's my fear. Mm. So there are people who are just 
holding this thing together with strings because they so deeply believe in journalism and its ability to be a, a good for society. And they're not wrong, right? But too much of our infrastructure is built on that. Yeah. yeah. And just life will eventually just come at you. That is not a way for an industry to survive. And I don't think that the powers that be, the folks with real power to address that, understand how true that is. Because they, I think they want to believe that it's that they've built sustainable things that are, you know, that are built on sort of business principles and not that there isn't some audience director losing sleep at night, making sure that mm. their work is being seen and that their ads are being seen um, or that there isn't an operations director who's also the finance director and the writing the grants and doing the grant reports. And that is unsustainable. And it's like, yeah. when I talk about like, when too much of our conversation about sustainability is about money. Yeah. It should really be about people. How do you build that in an, into an organization? How do you honor the thought and the reality that as you're growing an organization, you need to truly center people? How does that, what does that look like? You can see when people are falling apart. <laughs> you can see the cracks start, right? Yeah. You can see if you don't have enough editors. You can see if you don't have enough, um, you, you know, enough revenue people. And I can often see it is for under rev. I mean, cause I'm on the business side. I can often see it as like, how much money do I personally feel responsible for raising every year? Mm. Is that sustainable? Can I personally raise $2 million every year? No. And so that means there has to be other hands in this pot splitting up that work. So if we take it 25, 25, 25, 25, 25, that's fine. Whatever that looks like, right? There yeah. have to be other hands. Cause at the point at which I also need to be on the road speaking and I also need to be in the community speaking, my pot is going down. So that means we're going to have to bring other people in. And so the same thing, and the same thing, of course, is true on the, on the editorial side and the other sides of an organization. Yeah. You know when folks are falling apart and you also know when the work starts to suffer. You can see it. It's clear. Yeah. Additionally, I mean, obviously one, one, one big, 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 big focus area is making sure that the workload and the work responsibilities are sustainable. Additionally, obviously, the United States, as great <laughs> as it is sometimes, still one of the few countries in the world without a proper functioning baseline social system paid maternity leave, healthcare for all, everything that we could talk about for hours here now. But how do you, how do you tackle that at Outlier? I know that you guys are very, very diligent in thinking through how you can provide a healthy work environment, a supportive work environment, a stable social system like the, <laughs> the nation social system does not support. How do you guys tackle that? This is a place of personal... <laughs> <laughs> deep frustration. Yeah. In order for us to be able to build and run a newsroom that Detroiters can depend on for the long term, that means we also have to build an organization mm. where people want to be in it and want to stay and want to bring their best selves to it. That is expensive. Yeah. And I do not think that the folks who help us sustain this work financially understand mm. just how expensive it is and if it's going to be done well in this country. Yeah. So in order for us to have 
a maternity leave policy that gives folks 16 weeks off of work, which is unusual. Yeah. And many much larger <laughs> organizations for profits making lots of money. Um, we understood that we were going to have to build processes and systems into our workflows so that if somebody is out, we could figure out a way to hold that person's work and not also all fall apart as well. Yep. So I'll just give an example on the editorial side. We had a reporter who was out on leave and they write a weekly newsletter. And in order to sort of divvy up that work, we hired freelance reporters and freelance writers to take over that newsletter over those 16 weeks, which also introduced 16 new voices to our audience and allowed for there to be some different conversations, conversations that might not have happened if we had that one reporter on that beat, right? And so that was a really interesting give and get. It also was work, right? Because you're editing a different type of voice. You're editing people who aren't yeah. all reporters. So there, like, we also learned some things from that process. My um, development director is out on leave now, and really thinking through, like, we brought in a part-time person earlier this summer, and pretty quickly realized that if we were going to be successful long term, but also while uh, this person was out on leave, then we were going to have to bring that person up to full time. And it was a good for both them, but also for our department, which is deeply understaffed. We're deeply understaffed on the business side. There's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. But, you know, in order to have wealth, the, the concept that wealth does not just belong to the top line leadership and that it should be given more equally across the board, we eat more costs. We pay 100% of healthcare premiums. We match 401k um, up to 4%. Like these sorts of things are about as much about retention of our staff. And they're also a call out on the system. Yeah. It's the same thing on our editorial side. Like we've always said that as, you know, Outlier is also a call out to systems that were built not censoring people who most needed information. We just take that same process yeah. and put it on the personnel side yeah. and it will cost you yeah. dearly. And I can't tell you that we will be able to sustain it at this level forever as we get bigger. I don't know that I can tell you that I can pay a hundred percent of healthcare premiums if we are a staff of 25. Yeah. And does as a leader, it makes me have conversations on the political side about what it means to ask people to build businesses, both on the for-profit and nonprofit side, and have to eat these kinds of costs. It's just not sustainable. So totally, it's hard. <laughs> you touched on, on, on equity uh, right now, and I, I, I wanted to ask your thoughts on that. You know, a few weeks ago when I, when I talked in this podcast with our shared friend Irving Washington and mm-hmm. asked him whether we are, we are losing our, our momentum towards equity, that I feel, you know, at least got raised a little bit, got started a little bit more after the murder of George Floyd and uh, the conversations that happened then. And he just bluntly said, yes. (laughs) He said, yes, we are losing that. And we talked a little bit about that. How do you feel about that? What's the state of conversations? What's the state of commitments? I think that all of the fears that many of us as leaders of color and I'll speak specifically for Black leadership as a Black woman in this country. One of my fears was that I was just hearing a lot of talk. And I said that, you know, openly a lot. And, you know, a couple of people said, no, but we're making real progress. Like, they, you know, and I was like, yeah, but progress 
you can feel progress in your bones. Yes. You can feel a shift, a major shift in your bones. I did not feel that in my bones. And in mm-hmm. fact, what I felt was that I better get in and get everything I can right now while they still care. Yeah. And I deeply believe, sadly, that I was right. And that Irving is right. And that you're starting to see, you know, folks call this out pretty directly. We've not made as much progress as we needed to make at that Mm. time. We hadn't made enough progress before that time. And also like, you know, the conversation about if we're, is the conversation about equity or is it about liberation? Is it about really making sure that I'm not asking for a piece of the pop. I'm asking for the fair share that I already had earned and wasn't being given. Yeah. And so that is a conversation that is really difficult, particularly in a country where so much is at stake right now. And the political discourse is so fraught. Mm. And you also still just need to do the day-to-day work. Totally. So am I, you know, you'd ask that question about like how much of my time is spent doing these multiple things. The other split of that is like, how much of my time do I spend um, making sure that the folks who are building behind me get a fair share of the pot as well, while also mm. still fighting for my share of the pot. Yeah. It's, it is a difficult time to do this work. I will say that. Yeah. When I look at legacy organizations that, that in general don't have, you know, <laughs> don't have a history of, of centering equity, centering inclusion, centering healthy work-life balances, you know, centering many of the things that we just talked about, One thing that makes me very worried is that I see a lot of, yeah, you know, the business is hard now. We need to kind of focus on the, you know, we can't have that like touchy-feely diversity conversation now. We need to focus on the important things. As if the business isn't failing because you didn't have those conversations 20, 30 years ago. The dishonesty of why the business model of journalism is broken, it has never been a fully honest conversation. Mm. Because some of that, yes, there was a breakdown of an ad model, sure. But there was also a product that did not serve enough people and also a inability to have a touchy-feely conversation when the model broke down and say, hey, here's what we're facing. Like, I've always wondered, like, why wasn't there a day when all of the folks that ran papers said, we're going to, on the front page, run a, a, a piece that says the crisis of journalism and <laughs> how we need your help? Yeah. That inability to be vulnerable, to have honest conversations, to believe that you are not the only person in the room who understands how things work is yeah. our biggest failing. Yeah. And you see it not only on the editorial side, but also on the business side. Absolutely. And so if you won't have honest conversations about that, I certainly don't expect you to have honest conversations about equity and, and, and DEI. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the many reasons behind that is that I do honestly feel that many legacy journalism leaders and people who've been in the industry for a long time really don't think journalism is broken. They think it is just a business model. That's right. I I still have conversations with people who are like, if we can finally persuade folks to pay, it's just (laughs) them. They don't, they, they're not, they, they didn't get used to paying for digital stuff. Once we get there, 
it's all going to be good. And I'm like, wow. Yeah, no, I, I don't have that. This is going to be impossible. It is impossible. And I certainly don't. I, I, this is one of the reasons why I'm so grateful that I live and I am from a place like Detroit because it really sits my feet in reality. Yeah. I understand very directly to live in two worlds where there is both wealth and there's also extreme poverty. There's power and there's also the erasure of power all in the same breath, all in the same street, all in the same house sometimes. And so if you are able to like sit in reality long enough and get out of the Ivy League walls of your institution and really sit down, like my dinner table at any given time looks like guys who work on the plant you know, still, and folks with PhDs. I can sit at tables like that very regularly. And that really helps me to understand the intersections of the worlds that we live in. And I'm never going to convince the brother who works on the plant that that they should be paying for news because what is the value of the news product? I'm watching, we're in the middle, of course, of the UAW strikes and and multiple strikes here in Detroit right now. Also, our casino workers are out on strike. And so how are those folks able to pick up a paper and understand how to navigate that journey? Is the journalism useful for them or is it useful for the powers that be? Are you a talking voice for car companies or are you helping people navigate perhaps food insecurity for the first time because they aren't getting their full pay? And so I don't understand what they don't understand, (laughs) but I do know that if we don't start to move past that concept, we're all in trouble. Yeah. And I do think what makes you strong as a leader is that you can almost, you know, you can understand both of those worlds and you can sit at that dinner table and kind of bring those conversations together, which I think is ultimately what community work is, right? I don't know how or why yet. I have been fortunate enough to live on two sides of what feels like an equator Mm. and that I can sit at that table in Detroit and then sit at a table of, you know, leaders from organizations, you know, that I certainly never thought I'd be sitting at tables with and help both understand the worlds, but also be fortunate enough to build an organization that is sort of helping to divide or, or cross those divides yeah. by centering the people who helped raise me. And yeah. that for me is like the greatest gift I've ever been given is that I know that my aunt could open up Outlier and get useful information out of Outlier. My cousins could read it, right? And they do. And I'll get text messages and say, <laughs> hey, I saw that article, cousin, and blah, blah, blah. And that for me is the gift. I am not trying to like, we're not trying to win awards. We're not trying to become, you know, revenue earners of the year. We are trying to make sure that Detroiters open up our pages and they get value out of it. Mm. And everything flows from that. Yeah. Beautiful. We're nearly at the end here. So I'll end with the question that I ask all my guests at the end. If you could go back in time, give young Candice a piece of advice on career, on life, on leadership, what would it be? You are worthy of everything that has come to you and everything that will come to you. You do not have to overprove yourself. You do not have to ask. You do not have to beg. Those are things that you are naturally worthy of. Um, And believe deeply in that one thing that you are worthy. Beautiful, beautiful words, Candice. And 
What a way to end this conversation. Thank you so much for being here today. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really, <laughs> really loved this conversation. This was today's episode of Better Leaders. If you enjoyed it, please do follow us and subscribe. Thanks for listening. Missing Link.